Chapter 6 of The House of Love. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Christina Doherty. The House of Love by Elizabeth Cheney. Chapter 6 The First Rehearsal. The next morning, when Doris was sent down to the store at the corners for a box of baking powder, she met Miss Graves, who was coming out of the door. Come over and see me, she said, on your way back. I want to send Relia some pieces I've got for doll clothes. She had instantly noted that the hands of Doris were almost purple with cold. When the little girl appeared on the side doorstep, she did not have to wait to pull the bell for the door flew open and she was drawn into the warm little sitting room with rose geraniums in full bloom in the windows. Now, sit right down here, said Miss Graves, drawing forward a low cushioned rocking chair. How is your head feeling today? Just a little sore, thank you, replied Doris. Well, I'm very glad it isn't any worse. I have something for you. Miss Graves disappeared for a moment and returned with a plate and a generous three-cornered piece of chocolate layer cake. It isn't rich. It won't hurt you one bit, she said, laying the plate on the child's lap. The eyes of Doris sparkled. Oh, thank you. I just love chocolate cake, she said. I was wishing for a piece last night when I took in really a supper. Do you mean to say that you don't get the same food as really a wild? Asked Miss Graves sharply. Nobody in the house has just the same, said Doris, for Mrs. Wild is very particular about really as health, you know. But we all have very good food and enough of it, except I do something to displease Mrs. Wild, and then I get nothing but bread for dinner. I really try to do my work as nearly right as I can. I've heard she's a dreadful hard driver, said Miss Graves. There's a lot to do all the time, replied Doris, and Mrs. Wilde is very quick, and isn't really a handsome. You brave, generous little soul, said Annette Graves to herself, for she had been testing Doris rather than to gratify curiosity, of which she had but little concerning the Wild house as the ways thereof were well known far and wide. Yes, Relia is handsome enough, but I don't mean by that that I consider her beautiful. There's a big difference, you know. True, her eyes are big and velvety, but they're like a cow's eyes, and nobody ever would pick out a cow for being intellectual. But child, as Doris finished the icing of her cake, which she had saved to the last and set the plate on the table. Do you mean to say you haven't any gloves in this biting weather? I have some for Sundays, said Doris pleasantly, but Mrs. Wilde says that the fingers would come through so soon if I wear them for common. And look at your poor hands, all cracked and chapped. And bless my soul, if that right knuckle isn't bleeding, come here to me. Miss Graves led the way into the kitchen, poured some warm water into a basin, and said, Now, you just hold those hands in the water for a few minutes 
while I drop in a bit of this witch hazel. There now, here's some white castile soap for a good lather. Now we'll rinse them, and before they're quite dry, here's the best stuff in the world for chapped hands, better than all the expensive stuff in the drugstore. Miss Graves took down a cracked china cup from the shelf. This is nothing but mutton tallow. I try it out myself and put a teeny-weeny bit of geranium smell in it. Now rub it in real good. There now, don't they feel better already? Oh, thank you, yes, said Doris. Miss Graves bustled out and bustled in again. Here, she said, is a pair of my old white kid gloves. I have lots of them. Keep them on purpose. They're a mile too big, of course, but they're better so. And here's a pair of mittens that aren't too large. I'm always knitting them for somebody or other. That's right. Draw the mittens right on over the gloves. And here's a little jar of the tallow. Be sure and rub it in when you go to bed and sleep in the gloves. It will help a lot, even if you have to wash dishes and scrub. If your hands aren't in good order, it makes you feel put out all over. Here's a can of my best raspberries for Mrs. Wilde and a roll of satin scraps and old ribbon ends for Relia. You know, I do some millinery. Now you'll have to hurry. Wait, I'll put the baking powder, the tallow, and the pieces all in one paper. There now, you're all right, my dear. You are very kind, said Doris softly. I guess you live in the house of love, don't you? Well, I've never heard of the place, I'm sure, but it sounds good. Where is it? It's all the home I have, said Doris. And Miss Graves, as I was running along to the store, I thought how everybody in the house of love must have warm gloves in the winter, everyday gloves as well as Sundays. And then you called me in and gave them to me. Goodbye, and thank you ever and ever so much. Of all things, exclaimed Miss Graves, as she watched a little brown coat go up the road. When Doris arrived at the house, Mrs. Wilde had gone out to the chicken yard to see her pet leghorns, and Doris had time to divest herself of the luxurious gloves and put them away. When Mrs. Wilde came in, she was busily brushing down the back stairs. Seems to me you were gone an awful long time, Doris, she said. Miss Graves asked me in, said Doris. She wanted to send those things. Relia had already strewn the kitchen table with the bright pieces of silk and satin and was sorting them delightedly. People are beginning to notice really already, said Abigail. I don't know as I need Annette Graves' raspberries. Whatever has started her up to being so neighborly? She gave me some mittens, said Doris timidly. She makes them all the time to give away. Of course you had to come in for something, too, snapped Mrs. Wilde. I want you to learn that you are here to do things, not to get things. When I am a very rich lady, mother, said Aurelia, tossing her bright head, I will take Doris from you to be my maid, and I shall give her lots of my old things. If my cup runneth over, thought Doris, digging into a corner with the whisk broom. I can't see how I'm going to need anybody's cast-off clothes. Involuntarily, she began to hum, The King of Love My Shepherd Is.
But Abigail called out angrily, Shut up and do your stairs. I'm glad she can't keep me still inside, thought Doris. And before she reached the foot of the flight, she had gone over a list of French nouns and reviewed the last poem that Kelsey Starr had copied in her book. The Destruction of Sennacherib. She delighted in the wonderful lilt of the rhythm, the vivid metaphors, the high clarion note of victory. The Assyrian came down like the wolf on the fold, and his cohorts were gleaming with purple and gold, and the sheen of their spears was like stars on the sea, where the dark wave rolls nightly on blue Galilee. She had looked up the story in the Bible, and it strengthened her faith and courage to know that even that great and splendid army availed nothing at all against the angel of the Lord. If God be for us, who can be against us, read a reference that she had found. Why, I just ought to be glad all the time, she said to herself. The house of love is a great fort as well as a house, and no enemy can ever take it or even get into it. The things that Mrs. Wilde says can't hurt me at all if I keep sweet inside and don't hate back. It seemed to both Aurelia and Doris that Saturday would never come, but at last, two o'clock in the afternoon saw them both en route for Waverly Ridge. Mrs. Wilde had asked her husband to let Kelsey Star drive, taking the sleigh, which was wide enough to hold three very comfortably, It was the first sleigh ride that Doris had ever had, and the jingling bells seemed to give just the right expression to her gladness. Aurelia wore her grand blue velvet hat and coat, but Doris did not mind the contrast with her own attire. She and Kelsey had a merry time reciting alternately verses of the poems they had learned, each sometimes stumbling for a word that the other could triumphantly supply and it is not difficult to believe that Kelsey occasionally tripped on purpose, that he might see the light dance in the eyes of Doris. It was good to see her so happy. It seemed so wonderful that she, Doris Avery, had been invited to join the junior choir, and the strong-willed Mrs. Wilde had to let her go, even when she could not bear to have her. I speck the house of love is full of perfectly splendid surprises, she thought, I think I'm up out of the cellar now, and there's room after room to go through, and something beautiful in every one. Kelsey left the girls at the Meldon porch, both of them a trifle embarrassed. Timidly, they followed the white-capped maid up the wide stairway and into the nursery, where Miss Holcomb was romping with two flaxen-haired little nieces. So glad to see you, she said heartily, putting her young guests right at their ease. Mrs. Meldon was obliged to go to town with her husband this morning, but I am to do the honors. Eliza, to the maid, just help these children out of their coats, and then I shall carry off Aurelia to my studio. Doris, I'm sure you like children. They will take you all over the house, and at a quarter past three, the maid will take you over to the rehearsal, and when it is out, you are to come back here, and we will all have a tea party in the nursery when the babies have their supper. 
The nursery was the most beautiful room that Doris had ever seen. There was a sunny bay window with a wide cushioned seat, a bright fire of pine logs on the broad hearth, a large mossy green rug, a long low table covered with delightful toys and books, and over the mantel a choice photograph of the Madonna della Sedia. She stood entranced before the picture. The two children, who had looked a little askance at the stranger with dress and shoes, quite unlike any scene in their home before, saw a light on her face that drew them to her, one on each side. That's our Jesus by low picture, said four-year-old Edwina, after a pause. Where did it come from? asked Doris, softly. Mama brought it over the big ocean, said six-year-old Helen. There's a story about it. There's a lot more bigger pictures downstairs. Want to see them? So the three went down to the first floor, and Doris had her first glimpse of that old world that her mother had seen and loved. But in the attic room, there had been no pictures but word pictures, those and her mother's face and the sunsets. Now she saw the Roman Forum, the Grand Canal at Venice, the Matterhorn, the Bay of Naples, a bit of quaint old Rothenburg, an interior of Westminster Abbey, and a few photographs of the world's greatest art treasures, the Virgin from the Ghent altar exquisitely colored, so that the wonderful blue of her gown was well suggested, a Rembrandt with its shaft of light, a Del Sarto holy family. Some of these were in the living room, others in the library, and then the latter on three sides of the room, low shelves of books, books, books. The child's heart swelled with a new sense of the richness of the world. Involuntarily, she put out her arms as if to gather something of the glory of it all. A door had opened to her consciousness. This beauty, this joy for the eye, the mind, the heart must all be in the wonderful house of love. She hardly glanced at the silver and cut glass and exquisite china in the cabinets of the dining room as they passed through to the conservatory. That was yet a wider revelation. She had never known that people could have a garden in the house and the snow lying deep over the whole country. The warm, moist air was heavy with sweetness. The carnations, Mrs. Meldon's favorite flowers, were staked in long, spicy rows from white and pale pink down to glowing ruby. She had noticed, as in a dream, as she came down the stairs, a tall crystal vase of yellow ones lighting the leaf-brown tones of the long living room. Miss Holcomb, hurrying down the stairs to make sure that the hour for the rehearsal was not forgotten, came upon Dara suddenly, and all the artistic spirit in her recognized that the exquisite bit of flesh and blood she had just begun to put upon canvas paled into insignificance before the soul that flamed in the eyes of the little maid. Doris sighed as if awakening from a dream and smiled. She likes our house very, very much, said Helen, holding fast to Doris. Very much, echoed Edwina. Now will you come up and play with me? Doris hasn't time now, darling. She must go over to the church, but she will come again, said their aunt. Now we will go to Nanny. 
A rather snobbish young nurse had returned from an errand to the village, and from her height of white, stiffly starched importance, ran her eye over Doris with a scornful expression that seemed to observe every freckle, as well as the new front breadth of the old plaid dress that brought the adjoining dinginess more into evidence and lighted finely on the coarse, heavy shoes that looked very much out of place on the rich rug. Truly, man judgeth by the outward appearance. Doris felt the hostile fire, but knew in her inmost heart that it could not hurt her. She need not allow it even to sear the joy that had come to her in the last half hour. Miss Holcomb herself held the tight coat for her, and Eliza, with a shawl over her head, not unkindly led the way down the street to the church gate, where she was about to leave her when Doris's courage failed her, and she said, Oh, won't you please go in with me? It ain't necessary, said Eliza. Go right straight on to that side door. It ain't locked, and nothing will bite you. And then she hurried away. Just then, two pretty girls of her own age, in neat winter suits and soft furs, came chattering in at the gate. Doris thought they would speak to her and invite her to go in with them. But they stared, nudged each other, and tittered rudely. Then a group of boys came running and shouting along. They did not notice Doris at all, but overtook the two girls at the church steps and stood laughing and talking about school affairs and a coasting party to come off that evening. And then they went in a gleeful bunch into the vestibule and the heavily carved oak door closed behind them. Doris could not gather courage to follow them. Oh, that somebody who lived in the house of love would come. In a few moments, somebody came. It was the rector himself, who very seldom looked in on the junior rehearsal. Today, he wished to see Miss Courtney about the Christmas exercises in the village hall. He came along with his eyes on the ground. He was thinking about the three divisions of his next Sunday sermon on the Good Shepherd and did not notice the stray lamb just at hand. Doris knew so little about clergymen that she was afraid of them, and her tongue seemed paralyzed. Although St. Margaret's was attended mostly by the Waverleys and the collateral families, strangers were supposed to be welcome, and a number of the plainer people living in the village made it their church home. Mr. Meldon, who was quite democratic in his ideas, had not hesitated to select from the Sunday school for his children's choir the voices best suited for the work, quite irrespective of the Waverly blood. Some of the older ladies had complained of the innovation. You have your own Campo Santo, he said, although there was only dirt enough brought from England for Sir Percival and Lady Margaret's fault to stand in, and the rest of you can only get as near as possible, although pedigrees are no passports to paradise. When it comes to praising God, I believe that the rich and the poor should meet together. Hence it was that the daughter of the village carpenter, a lovely girl of 15, with sweet face and gentle manners, with a clear soprano voice, led the processional on the girl's side. Her great charm lay in her thoughtfulness for others, and everybody loved her. It was she who now came into the gate and saw Doris standing alone. Good afternoon, she said pleasantly. Have you come to the choir rehearsal? 
Yes, said Doris. Mr. Meldon invited me, but I don't like to go in alone for the first time. Of course it is hard, said Louise Brown, drawing the hand of Doris through her arm. But you come right along with me. We won't go in at the big door facing the whole choir, but around through the little door in the back. If you once get into your chair, you won't mind after that. So Doris made her entrance under the sheltering wing of her new friend's kindness, just as Miss Courtney was ringing the first bell for silence. Louise did not go directly to her own place, but sat down beside the newcomer in the last row. It was more of a singing school than an ordinary rehearsal. The first 15 minutes were always allowed for sight reading. Doris had learned from her mother the scale and the staff, but had had no practice. She had the help, however, of an inborn musical sense, so that Miss Courtney, who walked up and down the aisles, observed that she was quick and attentive and that her notes were true and very sweet. When the hymns for the following Sunday and a simple anthem of easy range had been well gone over, the leader announced that there was to be a delightful cantata on Christmas Eve to be given by the choir and the Sunday school, that the parts would be given out the following Saturday and work begin at once. There was a buzz of excitement over the statement, and more than 30 tongues were set in motion. Doris could hear stage, scenery, costumes, and a tree afterward, called out one of the boys. Yes, said Miss Courtney, smiling, the best we have ever had yet. Then she rang the bell for silence and dismissed the class. Doris was the last in the outgoing stream. No one had greeted her. A few had noticed her as if questioning her right to be there. And one miss, with a pert air and flamboyant hair ribbons, had remarked audibly to a group of girls with stupid sarcasm that was mistaken for wit, Paris hat, girls! They can't hurt me. They can't, Doris was saying to herself. The house of love is a great, big, strong fort. Just then, Louise Brown, who had been talking with the leader, approached Doris, saying, Please wait a minute. Miss Courtney wishes to speak with you. Doris went rather shyly up to the tall, stylish lady with eyeglasses. You are the little girl of whom Mr. and Mrs. Meldon spoke to me, she said encouragingly. I want to tell you that I have especially observed you today and am much pleased with your voice. You are a little behind the rest on the sight reading, as they have had the exercises a longer time, but if you will come half an hour earlier than the rest every Saturday, I will be most happy to help you to catch up with the class. Doris could hardly believe her ears, but she managed to express her grateful acceptance of the offer. I suppose you are going to Mrs. Meldon's now, she said. I am walking right by the house. We will go together. Thus it happened that Nanny, quite irritably at the prospect of having Doris at the nursery tea, saw from the window the finest young lady in the ridge coming down the street with one hand in her handsome sealskin muff and the other clasping the brown, woolen-gloved fingers of the girl in the uncouth shoes. And Miss Gladys Courtney was smiling down into the upturned face while Doris smiled in return. Doris had white, 
even teeth that her mother had taught her to care for most faithfully. And when she smiled, she had a charm of which she knew nothing. Well, I must say, I don't understand it, muttered Nanny. It's some new crochet of the master's, I suppose, and I'd better be nice to her. So Doris, who was not looking forward with much pleasure to refreshments in the small kingdom of the white starched nurse, was agreeably surprised to be welcomed without the sharp glance and contemptuous air. The children immediately set upon her for a story, and seated in a wide, luxurious chair, with a small girl perched on each arm of it, Doris was in the midst of an entrancing tale of what she saw in the open fire when Miss Holcomb came in with Aurelia. Please, please, go on, cried Helen. Don't top, Doris, pleaded Edwina. But Eliza entered just then with a large tray piled with sandwiches and little frosted cakes and a pitcher of steaming cocoa. And by the time the refreshments were consumed, Michael was at the door with the horses and the big sleigh. Aurelia was rather out of sorts. It had been somewhat tiresome posing for Miss Holcomb for nearly two hours, in spite of occasional relaxations enlivened by chocolate creams and Alice in Wonderland. She was annoyed to see the favor that Doris had secured from the children. She had heard Miss Holcomb say that they would take Doris over the house. She had not seen the house, and her mother had particularly charged her to notice everything in it. I'd like to live in a place like that, she said in a low, discontented tone to Doris. I hate our house. Up there, the halls are warm like summer, and all the doors of the room stand wide open. That's what I'm going to have sometime. Won't you feel jealous, Doris Avery? when you see me in a beautiful long pink silk train with the doors all open in winter, even the parlor door. Guess you'll wish you had it, won't you, Doris? I'd like a nice house of my own and nice clothes, answered Doris. But if you love everybody, you won't feel put out when they have them, even if you don't yourself. And the house of love is the very beautifulest house there is and there can't anybody take it away from me unless I hate back. Is that a fairy story? asked Aurelia, wonderingly. No, it's truer than anything, replied Doris. It's as true as the Bible. Well, you're a very queer girl, said Aurelia. Isn't this a lovely soft sleigh? You sink away down in it, and the robe is so big. I like fur away up to my neck, don't you, Doris? Yes, said Doris, and the bells and the snow and that splendid star that has just come out. You seem as if it all belongs to you, said Aurelia pettishly, even the star. And so they do, answered Doris, with a happy little laugh, for they are all in the house of love. Just then they were surprised to find themselves already at the corners, and Kelsey standing by the store steps waiting to walk home with them. End of chapter 6, read by Christina Doherty, April 24th, 2022.